Today is Sunday, September 15th, 2019. On this day in 1963, the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama was bombed by members of the KKK. It was the third bombing in 11 days, sparked by a federal court order mandating the integration of public schools. But what cemented this latest blast in the public consciousness was its terrible consequences. The death of four young girls, innocently waiting in the church for Sunday services. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a ParCast original. Every day, we flip back the calendar to this date years ago and recount one event from true crime history. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Today marks the anniversary of the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church and the deaths of 14-year-olds Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson, and 11-year-old Denise McNair. Before we unpack the ramifications of this attack, let's go back to the morning of September 15, 1963, a little after 9 a.m. Sarah Collins cut off a small sliver of the eggs on her plate and chewed them well past the point of disintegration. She was trying to draw out her time at the breakfast table as long as possible without drawing her mother's attention or ire. She hated going to Sunday school at church now, ever since they brought in the new teacher. When it was time to pass the collection plate, she glared at Sarah's failure to contribute, telling the rest of the classroom that some people liked to spend their money on candy instead of on the Lord's work. Sarah didn't have any candy. Sarah's family of nine didn't have any money. Wasn't it enough for God that she showed up for service at all? Instead, the new teacher humiliated her week after week. Sarah's mother finally looked up from feeding the baby and realized that Sarah still hadn't finished her breakfast. She clapped her hands to get her daughter's attention, telling her to hurry up. It was almost 9.30. If Sarah didn't get a move on, she'd miss Sunday school. Exactly, thought Sarah. Though their mother urgently rushed them out the door, Sarah and her two sisters, Addie Mae and Junie, took their time walking to the 16th Street Baptist Church. They played a friendly game of keep-away, tossing Junie's small purse back and forth, each one of them taking a turn in the middle. Just as she'd done at the breakfast table, Sarah tried to buy as much time as possible during the 17-block trek. Their dilly-dallying worked. By the time the girls reached the corner of 16th Street and 6th Avenue, Sunday school was already underway. Instead of joining late, an even worse offense than stiffing the collection plate, Sarah and Addie Mae hid in the women's restroom in the basement until the end of class. Junie, who was in high school, left to join her friends in the choir room upstairs. When the class finished a little after 10 o'clock, a few other girls from Sunday school came into the basement bathroom. Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson, and Denise McNair. They were happy to see the Collins sisters and lamented their absence that morning. Addie Mae quickly provided an excuse. They were helping their mother with their younger siblings. 
Today was Youth Sunday. All five girls wore crisp white dresses for the occasion. On the fourth Sunday of every month, the children and young adults of 16th Street Church were in charge of all church administration, serving as the ushers, the choir, and the speakers. Then after service, there was a barbecue with dancing. Sarah sat on the couch in the restroom, watching the other girls primp in front of the mirror before the start of service. 11-year-old Denise smiled, showing off the gap in her front teeth. 14-year-old Carol read a few lines from the small Bible she kept in the pocket of her church dress. 14-year-old Cynthia Wesley fussed over the lace bottom of her slip, peeking out beneath the edge of her skirt. As the girls finished up in front of the mirror, Denise asked Addie to retie the sash on the back of her dress. Sarah watched her sister reach out for the pieces of satin, but never saw her finish the bow. Suddenly, an explosion rocked the foundation of the church, tearing a seven-foot hole in the wall and sending bricks and glass everywhere. It was the loudest sound Sarah had ever heard in her life. She screamed out for her sister, Addie, Addie! Sarah was blind and could hardly breathe. The air choked with dust and smoke. Her face and arms stung, her whole body covered in needling cuts. When she touched her cheek, it was wet with blood. For a few moments, all she registered was screaming and chaos. Then Sarah heard, but still couldn't see, a few men picking their way to her through the rubble. She felt one of them scoop her up in his arms. He cradled her to his chest and carried her outside to an ambulance. At the hospital, doctors pulled around two dozen shards of glass from Sarah's face and neck. More pieces were still embedded in her eyes, leaving her mostly blind. The doctors didn't know yet if her sight would come back. In the meantime, Sarah lay in her hospital bed in a fog, thick pieces of gauze protecting her closed eyes. That afternoon, Junie came to visit. Sarah's first question was about Addie. Where was Addie? Was she okay? Junie stroked her hand and told her everything was fine. Addie hurt her back in the explosion, and she was being treated by doctors too, just like Sarah. She promised that Addie would visit her the next day. But later, when Junie stepped into the hall, Sarah overheard her tell a nurse that one of her sisters had been killed in the bombing. Addie was dead. Sarah didn't ask why Junie had lied to her. She understood those motivations. What she couldn't comprehend was why someone wanted to hurt her sister. Why would someone put a bomb under a church filled with children? Coming up, we'll look at the impact of the 16th Street church bombing. Now, back to the story. On Sunday, September 15, 1963, members of the KKK placed a box with 19 sticks of dynamite under the back steps of the 16th Street Baptist Church. The resulting explosion killed four young girls and injured 20 others. The 16th Street Church served an important role for the black community in Birmingham throughout the Civil Rights Movement. 
Dr. Martin Luther King preached and held organizing meetings there. Several marches in the city had commenced from the church steps. It was a rallying point for equality, which is exactly what made it a target for white supremacists in Birmingham, one of the most heavily segregated major cities in America. The use of explosives by terrorists in the early 1960s was so prevalent, the city earned the nickname Bombingham. In the weeks leading up to the 16th Street bombing, two events motivated the attack. On August 28th, over 250,000 people marched in Washington, D.C. The event culminated with Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech, delivered on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Soon after, a ruling came down from a federal court that mandated Alabama take steps to integrate their public schools. The decision set off a rash of bombings, but none were as devastating as the 16th Street Church. At the sound of the explosion that morning, hundreds of black neighbors rushed to the church. When they heard about the deaths of 14-year-olds Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson, and 11-year-old Denise McNair, the crowd of 2,000 rioted and marched through the streets of Birmingham. The local police were quickly overwhelmed and called for reinforcements. Alabama Governor George Wallace dispatched 300 state troopers and 500 National Guardsmen to quell the situation. In the chaos, two more children were killed. 16-year-old Johnny Robinson was confronted by police for throwing bricks at a passing car flying a Confederate flag. In the argument, he was killed by a shotgun blast to the back. 13-year-old Virgil Wade was riding his bicycle a few miles outside Birmingham when he was shot and killed by white neighbors. The police determined that there apparently was no reason at all for his death, other than the general racial tensions that erupted on the 15th. White supremacists lauded the attack on the 16th Street Church. Reverend Charles Conley Lynch told his fellow Klansmen, quote, those responsible for the bombing deserved medals, and the four young girls who died there weren't children. Children are little people, little human beings, and that means white people. I say good for whoever planted the bomb, end quote. But for most of Birmingham and the country at large, the death of these innocents was a shocking wake-up call. It eliminated the sense of progress that had been buoyed by the March on Washington 18 days earlier. At a funeral for three of the four girls, Dr. King once again took the stage, this time to deliver a eulogy. He said in part, God still has a way of wringing good out of evil. The innocent blood of these little girls may well serve as the redemptive force that will bring new light to this dark city. Indeed, this tragic event may cause the white South to come to terms with its conscience. King's words would prove to be prophetic, for much of white America, this was the first time they saw racial violence directed towards children. 
Earlier cases, such as that of 14-year-old Emmett Till, were only widely publicized in the black community. The stories never broke the color wall. But articles about the bombing and photos of the destruction, including shots of Sarah Collins's bandaged face, were published in Life magazine and circled the country. White readers learned that one of the girls was decapitated by the blast. Another was so disfigured, she could only be identified by her homemade dress. The day after the bombing, a white lawyer in Birmingham Charles Morgan Jr. stood before a segregated meeting of the city's young men's business club and placed the blame for the attack at all of their feet. He saw his own child in the deaths of the four girls and said, Every last one of us is condemned for that crime and the bombing before it and a decade ago. We all did it. Every person in this community who has in any way contributed to the popularity of hatred is at least as guilty, or more so, as the demented fool who threw that bomb. Within months, Morgan received so many death threats, he was forced to flee Birmingham with his family. But Morgan was not alone in his horror. White parents across the nation were galvanized to join the movement. The 16th Street church bombing was an important catalyst in the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which ended segregation in public spaces and outlawed any discrimination based on race. The next year, the 1965 Voting Rights Act was passed, which banned poll taxes and literacy tests designed to keep non-whites from casting ballots. On May 24, 2013, the four girls who died in the blast, Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson, and Denise McNair, were posthumously awarded congressional gold medals by President Barack Obama. Fifty years after their death, they were recognized for the role they played in the struggle for equality. Thanks for listening to Today in True Crime. I'm Vanessa Richardson. For more information on the 16th Street church bombing, listen to our episodes of Survival on Carolyn Mall. Today in True Crime is a ParCast original. You can find more episodes of Today in True Crime and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Today in True Crime, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Today in True Crime on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Today in True Crime in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back with a brand new episode tomorrow in True Crime. Today in True Crime was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, and production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Travis Clark. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 